Good morning. How is everyone? Good to be here. I was going to start off this morning by just trying to lighten the mood and talk about the accident that my wife had when she swerved off the road to miss a cat, ran into a person's pole in the yard, but I decided to not do that this morning. I want to get straight into the message. It was one of our last trips to Africa, Jason and I, and I think about 11 other men went to West Africa and visited four neighboring nations in West Africa for the purpose of teaching and equipping pastors and church leaders. I pray that was the outcome. A couple months after that, myself and another gentleman went back to those same four neighboring nations to meet with the pastors and church leaders to talk about further strategy in relation to the gospel ministry in that area. It was on that trip that I met one of the meekest men that I've ever encountered in all my life. He was an African native by the name of Sam. Now this one particular evening, we are sitting and we're talking and we're strategizing and we're highlighting all of these things that we're going to do and it's going to be bigger and better than it's ever been before. We're talking about the possibility of mass crusades and mass meetings. And in the midst of everything that we're going to do, Sam asks if he can ask a question. The question was this. At what point do you tell us and at what point do you teach us about God's love for us and the way that we love Him and the way that we reciprocate that love to other people. Now, it was indeed at that moment a very sobering moment. I believe that Sam was thankful for our efforts. I would, I would think and hope and pray that he was even benefited from our efforts. But man, was his wisdom revealed at that very moment. What is it that he is saying by the question that he is asking? I believe he's saying this. There are times indeed to be studious. There are times to be equipped and challenged and busy and engaged in ministry. But that can never be a substitute for, nor can it ever be detached from the active love of God that resides in a person's life. A love that causes men to move in a forward direction. If the love of God is absent not only in my ministry, but in my very life, then Christianity the Christianity that I'm creating is running a very great risk of being nothing more than a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. And I'm going to be very vulnerable with you this morning in saying I am very fearful of that. I am very, very fearful of that. Especially as I realize that my life, your life is but a vapor and it will be but just a few blinks of the eye and we will be standing before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and I am fearful that I will be known for something other than the active love of God in my heart. 
So, I'm going to listen to the question that Sam asks that reoccurs very regularly. And we're going to try to talk this morning about the way that God loves. And I pray this morning that we would be challenged by His grace to love in a different way, a more radical way. As we open our Bibles, please, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in or by God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we we come to you this morning, God, and we are once again quickly amazed. Just as we read this passage and we're introduced to a manner in which you love, it causes us, God, to be taken aback. So, Father, our prayer this morning is not just that we would have a better understanding of maybe the way that You would love, but that, God, that love would be permeated deeper into our hearts as Your people. Your love is amazing. Your love... It's holy, it's just, it's perfect, it's sincere, it's real, and God, it makes its way to us as sinners. So as we talk about loving, we are fully aware of the reality that we can only Love, talk about love, think about love, act on love because, God, You have first loved us. Bring these truths closer to us in our hearts and in our minds. We ask, Holy Spirit, that You would have Your way and that there would be clarity for Your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
three principles that I want to pull out of this passage. First, we're going to talk about the provision of God's love. Secondly, we will talk about the revelation of God's love. And lastly, and probably very briefly, as I've been going over this this morning, we will talk about the effect of God's love. So let's talk about the provision of God's love. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to work backwards. We're going to start in verse 17 as we talk about the provision of God's love. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Isn't it an amazing feeling and an amazing experience to be the recipient of grace? Of course, being the recipient of grace from God, but isn't it an amazing experience to be the recipient of grace from another human human being like a parent or a spouse or a friend or a child? It's at that moment that I'm not only confronted with the awareness that I've done wrong, but I'm also bombarded with the weight of guilt because of the wrong that I've done. And the beauty of being a recipient of grace is knowing that the consequences for my sin are very just. And then suddenly, and possibly unexpectedly, someone comes along and in a sense relieves us from the guilt of that sin and the guilt of that shame by saying something as simple as, it's okay, I forgive you. It's okay. It's forgotten. Ruth Graham, the daughter of the evangelist Billy Graham, candidly talks about two failed marriages. The first occurred when she was, when it was revealed to her that her husband was unfaithful to her. Her first husband was unfaithful. And after months and months and months of counseling, they finally determined that it was time to call it quits. And she quickly moved into another relationship in light of her parents' disapproval. As a matter of fact, her father, Billy Graham, called her from Tokyo to plead with her, do not move so fast in this relationship. Slow down. But her own confession was, I was hard-hearted and I was stubborn and she was quickly remarried a second time. But as quickly as she was married a second time was as quickly as the second marriage ended. So now, here is this woman with two failed marriages. Her father is the renowned evangelist known throughout all of the world and she is all alone with no place to go. And here is her story. I had to flee. So I packed up what I could in my car And I started for home. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What were my parents going to say to me? Were they going to say, you've made your bed, now lie in it? Were they going to say, we're tired of dealing with you? Were they going to accept me or reject me? The guilt and the shame built with every mile. And as I rounded the last bend in my parents' driveway, 
My father was standing on the porch waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and said two words that will forever be etched in my mind. Welcome home. It is an amazing thing to be the recipient of grace because it highlights the reality that my wrong is covered. Not only is my wrong covered, my wrong is absorbed because of and by the love of another. As a matter of fact, John, the author that we're reading from now, makes a statement in 1 John 4.16, God is love. And I believe that is what the heart of that statement really means. Listen, God is love. That has a very special meaning. And it has a very special meaning to those that He chose before the foundations of the world. But I want to say this in relation to all manner of men. The greatest way that we see, the greatest way that we know that God is love is because God offered, God offers provision in the midst of our rebellion. That's the way we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is love. Offer of provision in the midst of rebellion. That's not only what John is saying in 1 John 4.16. It's also what he's saying in this passage, John 3.17. Verse 17 is God's provision. Let's look at it again. Verse 17 is God's provision. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn or judge the world. Here's the provision. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, listen. Verse 19 highlights man's rebellion. So, to make sure that we're keeping this in the right context as we're defining the reality that God is love. To make sure we're keeping this in the right context, let's remember that verse 17 is God's provision which is taking place in the midst of and in spite of verse 19, which is man's rebellion. Let's look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. Christ did not come to the world to condemn or judge the world, but His appearance on its own necessarily judges because it forces men to make a choice of who and what they're going to love. Are they going to love God more than they're going to love themselves? Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Now the word condemn in verse 17 is from a Greek word that means to judge or to be of an opinion or more specifically to be of a legal opinion. These are justice terms. These are courtroom terms. In other words, God did not send His Son to examine the case of the world and pass judgment on the world. God did not send His Son to drop the anvil of justice which would have necessarily meant a verdict of guilty. 
And the reason that God did not do that is because a guilty verdict was reached before Christ came to this world. We're reminded in Revelation 13.8 that the Lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Why? Because there was a guilty verdict before the foundation of the world. And oh, how God must love those that He chose before the foundations of the world that He would make provision for them before creation. How He must, how He must, how He must love us so. Christ didn't come primarily to determine if there was rebellion. Christ didn't come primarily to determine the degree of rebellion. Christ came primarily to make provision. Provision for rebellion. And let's be very clear what that means. Our deeds were not indifferent, they were evil. Our deeds were not neutral, they were wicked. That's the good news of the Gospel. Christ came to save us Christ came to change us. Christ came to make provision for us in the midst of our rebellion. Now, of course, when the Bible says that Christ came to save us, when this passage says that, of course the implication is that Christ came to cause us to pass from death into eternal life. But let me assure you, it means so much more than that. Christ came to save us, to change us to change us dispositionally. Not that we would just pass from this state to another state regarding eternal life, but so that we would pass from one dispositional state to another dispositional state. God came to save us to address our affections, to address the things that we love, to address the things that we're committed to, to address who we are. Now that's good news, beloved, because what that means is you do not have to be indifferent towards your wife or indifferent toward your husband anymore. Because Christ has came to save us from that. You do not have to be defined by irritability toward your fellow man because Christ came to save us from that very thing. You do not have to be defined by addictions that are seen in the day as well as addictions that are hid by the cover of night. Why? Because Christ came to save us from those very things. You do not have to be defined by bitterness that you've been carrying from your childhood or that you've been carrying recently because Christ came to save us from those things. You do not have to be defined by an introverted disposition. You can engage with confidence with the people of God because Christ came to save us from those things. You do not have to be defined by apathy. You do not have to be defined by a lack of commitment to Christ because He came to save us from those things. So what about when we are? What about when you are indifferent toward the things of God? What about when I am bitter because I feel I've been so wrong? What about tonight when I'm sitting in my den and I see rebellion begin to creep up in the hearts and the minds and the lives of my kids? What do we do then? I want to assure you of this, beloved. We'll tell you what we do. We bear the responsibility of offering provision 
for that sin. But I want to assure you it's a provision of grace. It's not a disabling of that individual because of a voice of condemnation. We enable the individual by the provision of grace. Who is it that can go into the presence of the Lord and receive grace and receive mercy? It is the person who knows that they enter into the presence free, completely free of any condemnation whatsoever. We're talking about creating an atmosphere where we simply learn from the sins that creep up. And I know the, I know the temptation is to say we want to prevent the sin. And I hear you. And yes, let that be a goal, but we're not going to do that. <clears throat> I reflect on myself as a young father. This would have been my temptation. My temptation would have been, and maybe still even is at times, my temptation would have been to create behavioral patterns and plumb lines for my kids with the expectation that they walk in those behavioral patterns and plumb lines. And I would be so committed to the behavioral plumb lines and patterns that if they march out of the tune of conduct that I can stamp my approval on, I'm so committed to that that my goal is to simply get them back in line and I would, God forbid, neglect what's going on in here. That could be our temptation. Now, I believe that I believe that we're creating an atmosphere where we can go to our children's children and not so much say listen. We don't do that here. Or we do it this way, but rather listen, listen. God came to save you from that sin that's manifesting itself in your life right this very minute. Ruth Graham would go on to say in relation to the sins of her life, God had to teach me about the difficulties of life. He's going to do that. He's going to do that in our lives. He's going to do it in the sins of our lives, sins of our children, sins of our friends, those around us. We're going to see that creep up. But be comforted, beloved. He is teaching us God had to teach me about the difficulties of life to show me as a believer that none of us are exempt. We all have hardships. We all have things happen to us that we don't ask for. But part of God's plan is that we endure during those times. I remember one day when I was really beating myself up and taking responsibility for my marriage is falling apart. Just pouring my heart out. Daddy said, quit condemning yourself. You live under grace, and as one who lives under grace, you bear the responsibility of simply doing the best you can in following Christ. She goes on to say, whenever I go home, there's always a bouquet of flowers in my room with a handwritten note that reads, Welcome home. Signed, Daddy. That, beloved, is the provision of God's love. Welcome home, the way you are at this moment. And you know what? I am not going to condemn you and rake you over the coals. Welcome home. Let's talk about the grace of God. Something else that I think she could have seen, possibly, 
through this encounter with her father. Something that each one of us see as we continue to encounter God as the people of God. And that's the revelation of God's love. Let's look at John 3, 16. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I remember many, many months ago reading something from a Reformed theologian, and he gave his interpretation of how God views sinners. And it went like this, but I want you to bear with me. Okay? He says this, does God hate anyone? The answer is yes. Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before thine eyes, thou dost hate all who do iniquity. Then he gives an example of Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Then he goes on to ask, Are these verses hard to read? Do they make you feel uncomfortable? They should. The sobering fact is that God is so holy and so righteous that He hates the sinner. Some say that we should say that God only hates the sin, but loves the sinner. But the above Scriptures speak contrary to that. Bear with me, please. The reality is this. We cannot disagree with anything that this author has said. The Bible is extremely clear on the fact that God has a holy hatred toward those who reject Him, a holy hatred toward those who despise Him, and a holy hatred toward those who choose to be their own God. We cannot say that this author has said anything wrong in relation to God's wrath that is designated toward the ungodly, but this is what we can say. We can say that this author has ignored the way that God chooses to love sinners in the midst of His anger and in the midst of His wrath toward the sinner. Let me assure you, there are no contradictions here. Does God love the, does God, does God hate the sinner or does God love the sinner? Which is it? Well, let me assure you, beloved, that clearly it is both. Psalm 5, 5, The boastful shall not stand before thine eyes. Thine, thou dost hate all who do iniquity. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And although both are true, we cannot for one moment talk about God's feelings of wrath or God's feelings of anger without talking about the essence of who God is at all times, and God is love. When God is angry, when God is wrathful, when God is vengeful, the reality of the claim, God is love, is still intact. Now, personally, when I am angry, when I find myself responding in wrath, most of the time, anger and wrath, they are overpowering and they are overtaking all other emotions and all other feelings. That is not the case with God. And listen, beloved, that is what makes the love of God all the more amazing. 
God can have a holy hatred toward the sinner and yet in spite of the sinner, call that very sinner into a relationship with Himself and have an intimate love relationship with that one who was a sinner. God can love that way. Why? Because God is love in His very essence. Matthew 5, 43-45 introduces us to that truth. And it says this. Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Why do I hate my enemy? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Why do we love our enemies? so that we can be good sons and daughters and be like our Father who is in heaven. So in order to be like our Father who is in heaven, we must love our enemies, which must mean that God has enemies that He loves. God has enemies that He has set His love on. How do we know that to be true? I'm going to tell you how we know that to be true. And we need to make this perfectly clear. If we think that we were less than enemies to God, if we think that we were less than being hated by God, we are greatly mistaken. We are not now loved by God because we were less than hated by God. We are now loved by God because when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, He made a provision in the midst of our rebellion. That's that great love we're talking about. That's how we know He loves His enemies because we were His enemies at one time. A great part of Jonah's frustration in going to Nineveh was the fact that he knew enough about God to know that God was just the kind of God that would draw Israel's enemies unto Himself. He knew that God was the kind of God that would lead Israel's enemies unto repentance. Now, listen to Jonah's anger starting in Jonah 4.2. It's almost comical. Isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are, are, that you are a merciful and compassionate God. I knew that you were slow to become angry. I knew that you were rich in faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster. Jonah's not afraid of missions. This isn't an issue of, I don't want to go. It's an issue of, I don't love people the way, God, that you are loving people. And so Jonah goes on to pray this long suicide prayer. Oh God, just take my life. Just take my life. It's over with. This isn't worth it. Just, just take me, God. I'm ready. And in the midst of Jonah's suicide prayer, in Jonah 4.11, God says this, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have pity on them? Should not I have grace for them? The great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. 
Should I not have grace and mercy and pity on them? Now listen, that is a brief glimpse of insight into the revelation, the driving force behind the revelation of God's love as seen in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Let's talk about what God's love is. This passage makes something abundantly clear. God has a love for the world. The word world is from a Greek word, cosmos. And it's defined as fallen mankind that is alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. God has a love, a type of love for that world. Now this is a very relevant truth that enables us Listen, to proclaim the love of God anywhere, everywhere, among any people, any people's group that we're around. This truth, this reality allows us to proclaim the love of God whether or not we are on African soil or American soil, whether or not we are in our churches or in our homes, whether or not we're talking to a successful businessman or a homeless man regardless of whether or not we're talking to a man and sharing the love of God, whether he's addicted or disciplined, we can with confidence say to any man, you, sir, God loves you with such a love that He gave His only Son that if you believe in Him, you will not perish, but you will indeed have have eternal life. We can speak that truth. That truth, as a matter of fact, I think it's that truth that Nate talked about on Wednesday night. So eloquently, Nate. That truth that this good news means that we can be shared with the Muslim as well as well as the Buddhist. This good news can be shared with the smart as well as the ignorant. This is the news that can be shared with the whole of humanity. But we've got to understand something. We have to understand that as Christ vocalizes this, He is throwing a wrench in the cog of this culture. God is speaking to a Jewish culture. A culture that has determined that all of God's redemptive purposes are restricted to them only. This is about us. And then here comes Jesus with this grand news. No. No, it's not about you. It's about the world. This is about a love that God has for all of mankind. Maybe they are like Jonah. The reality is maybe they're like us. Maybe, just maybe, we really are content for the good news of the Gospel to remain exclusive to our homes. Maybe we really are content that the good news of the Gospel would remain exclusive within the walls of our church. Maybe we're content that the good news of the gospel would remain exclusive within the culture of our immediate family. And maybe, just maybe, God wants to introduce us to the heart of the gospel that expands and breaks through those socioeconomic boundaries and barriers. Just maybe, God wants to introduce us to the heart of the gospel that breaks through racial boundaries. Just maybe God wants to introduce us to the heart of the gospel that breaks through intellectual boundaries. Listen, are there some people that are so different than me that I encounter that for some reason I think those differences cause me to think better of myself than I do them? Is that a possibility? You know what? 
I think sometimes it is. I think sometimes it is. For God so loved the world is the good news that God is breaking through all of those barriers. And guess what? He calls us to come along with Him to disrupt any type of exclusiveness that we may be tempted to put on the Gospel. He loves the world. What's that mean? It means that He loves people from every nation. People from every tribe. People from every tongue without any type of distinction whatsoever. Can we paraphrase John 3.16? I think we can. We can paraphrase it like this. God so loved people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue that He sent His only begotten Son so that any person within any nation, within any tribe, and within any tongue that believes in Him may not perish, but have everlasting life. What kind of people are we talking about? Possibly, potentially, and probably, we're talking about enemies. Now, I may intentionally be being a little dramatic here because I may not necessarily be talking about people that we could be on the verge of hating. I'm not necessarily talking about dark-skinned people in the Middle East who are building nukes and their goal is to wipe out every American. I'm simply talking about people who just might not be like us. Pastor Jim Cimbala, who is at least was, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, stated the following. I see this guy through Rose back. He's dirty and sheepishly looking at me in the center aisle. And I said to myself, God is my witness. Oh no. What a way to end an Easter Sunday. Somebody's going to hit me up for money. As he gets close to me, he smelled worse than any human being I had ever smelled in my life. The odor was so horrible. It was the odor of the street. It was the odor of filth. It was the odor of sweat and urine. And when I talked to him, I had to look away to inhale. I would look back at him breathing out. I reached in my pocket to pull out some money. He put his finger in my face and said, Reverend, I don't want your money. I want Jesus. The Jesus that you've been talking about. The Jesus that you've been preaching about. I'm going to die out here. I don't have a hope in this world unless somebody changes me. At that moment, Pastor Jim Cimbala goes on to say, I forgot about David. And I said, God, forgive me. I began to weep for my own need and for what I saw God doing in David. And David sensed it. I dropped my hands to my side. He came against me and he fell. His face, his matted hair, his filthy clothing fell against my chest and tie and I put my arms around him and then suddenly that smell became the most beautiful perfume I had ever smelled in my life. It was as if God was saying, if you have any value, it's this smell 
that I sent you for. Because that's the smell of the world that Jesus died for. You must love this smell because you are about this smell. Jesus didn't die for a nice, clean, neat little world. He came for that which was lost and ruined. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for that people, that group of people. Now, what am I trying to say? I believe that the complete whole life of the church is exciting. I believe it's addictive. I believe it's contagious. I believe it causes us to be moved with passion and commitment. But I have to say, it is out there. The life of the church, the complete life of the church, is not just here. The complete life of the church is out here. And the more we're committed to the complete life of the church, the more pure this church will be. You see, there are things that the church does that causes them to be more pure, and there are things that the church doesn't do that causes them to be less pure, to be engaged out there. The people that Christ died for. The more we're engaged, the more pure of a church we will be. Now, let me tell you what this revelation of God's love in John 3.16 is not. This revelation of God's love in John 3.16, it's not a prescription that enables any man on his own strengths or his own power or by his own will to run to God and make a decision. John 3.16 is a template for the redemptive process. If people will do A, believe, then they will receive B, eternal life. As a matter of fact, the Greek word translate the word translates the word whosoever, for God so loved the world that whosoever, the Greek language translates that word to mean specifically the ones who will believe in. So the literal translation translation of John 3.16 is, for God so loved the world that the ones believing in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We must pay attention to the word believe. Because that word believe demands that we have aid. Because we cannot believe on our own. Lastly, quickly, we will look at the effect of God's love. Let's go back to verse 8. And then back to 21. Jason spoke on this verse in part last week, and I'm nothing to add. I just don't feel that we can talk too much about John 3.16 without talking about John 3.8. The effect of God's love. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. It's the beginning of our salvation. Verse 21 is the continuation. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that His works have been carried out in God, or 
the literal translation, his works have been accomplished by God, not of himself. And listen, I just want to sum this up the best way I can in saying this. Jesus made it abundantly clear that no man, no man, can come to Him unless the Father draws Him. If we are loving God, if we are glorifying God, if we're committed to God, if we're passionate about God, if we're given to God, let me assure you, beloved, it is because God has made provision for His own glory by giving us the aid of the Holy Spirit that we could believe in the first place. Now, I want to say something. Jason sent out a chart that highlights the steps of salvation. Election, God chooses before the foundation of the world. Calling, we hear the human proclamation of the gospel. Regeneration, God imparts spiritual life to those who have been called. Conversion, we respond to the gospel call and belief. So when John 3.16 says, anyone who will believe will not perish but have everlasting life, that's called conversion. But the reality is something has to happen before conversion. And what has to happen before conversion is called regeneration. And that's what Jesus is talking about in 3.8. The wind blows where it will. Listen, I will never forget the time. I was walking up the hill to my mother's house, and on either side of the driveways, there's greenery. About 10 feet from one another. I'm walking up the hill, and I'm seeing the wind blow. And it's taking all this greenery that's in this section, and it's, it's blowing, and the trees are moving, they're dancing. 10 feet away, nothing. The wind's not phasing nor touching. Can't be seen, but we can look and know that the wind is blowing here and it is not blowing here. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be contained. It cannot be in the hands of men. It is completely in the hands of God and it blows where it will. It blows where it chooses to blow. In the same way that the wind was blowing in one direction and void of another is the same way that the wind of God blows in our very lives. The Bible makes it very clear that in the flesh we cannot please God. In the flesh we are a people who are of enmity toward God. It is only that we, we only please God when when we are a people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, we cannot please God in the flesh. We cannot go to God and say, I want this. Why? Because we are of a fleshly mind and it can't please God. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I want to ask you to do something with me, for me, along with me this morning. I want to ask that you would bow your heads, please. What does this mean? What's the, what's, the, what's the last thing that we're trying to say here? <clears throat> the love of God is such that God made provision in the midst of our rebellion. That's what, we're, that's what we're saying. I would ask you this morning, as we talk about the way that God loves. I would ask you to see the connection between 
what we do based on what the Holy Spirit of God does, has done. Nothing's changed. We want to love the way that God loves. We need the Holy Spirit of God to breathe that breath of life in us. We want to love people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, and I'm not not shooting for world missions here. But if we want to love people from every tribe, every every nation, every tribe, every tongue, the person across the street who's a different ethnicity, we need the Holy Spirit of God to blow afresh in our hearts and on our minds. So, Father, as we come to You this morning and we see vaguely still the way that You love, the best thing that we can do is to look to the cross and see the depth of Your love in the fact that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See the fact that God, the very wrath that was to be ours, You poured upon Your Son. Father, the best thing that we can do is look to the cross and see that You, God, determined a way to draw us back to You. We look to the cross and we see Your Son in full agreement that He would bring justice and glory to Your name. And the sins that were previously passed over would be confronted. God, we look to the cross this morning and we see that You are a God who loves us with such a serious and such a real love that in spite of evil and in spite of our wickedness, God, not only did You love us, but the love was such that it, that it pulled us out of that atmosphere and into another. God, we look at the cross and we're amazed. Once again, So, Father, breathe, breathe that love afresh and new into our hearts. Do it for us. Do it for Your glory. God, do it for others. Do it for Your namesake in this community. Do it for Your glory in this city. Do it, do it for the glory of the Father in this state. Do it for Your glory in this nation. And may we be a people committed to the Son of Man being lifted up in our lives, in our vocabulary, in our actions, so that all men would look to Him and live. We, we just ask that God, You'd breathe afresh and anew in our hearts. For Your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name.